Hello, and welcome back to Kyle's Internal Monologue. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the ending of Babylon 5 Season 3, Zaha Doom. So a lot of stuff happens in this episode, uh, mainly in regards to Sheridan, and I want to talk about some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, but I just want to touch upon some interesting uh, things that happen this episode to set up an overarching sort of thing for next season. Um, is that there are various points in this episode where things are stated or shown or what have you uh, that will feed into the next season, which Babylon 5 has always been doing this, but um, it just adds to an era of mystery and adds to the sense of dread at the end of the episode. I really like that. So like Londo, who gets what, less than like three minutes of screen time in this episode, uh, he's got a promotion, and he's now an advisor to Emperor Cartesia. Well, uh, this is this is because uh, he's become so prominent uh, through the influence of Mr. Morden that, well, he needs to have an eye watching him, basically. They're afraid of him. They're afraid he's too powerful, so they have to keep him closer, you know, keep your friend close and your enemies closer type of thing. Uh, the disappearance of Garibaldi at the end. Um, what truly happened to Sheridan? How did Kosh say jump, jump now? At the it, 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 in uh, the big explosion in Zaha Doom, all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff that is just carrying on, uh, creating mysteries to lead into the next season. I really like that because, in my opinion, season three is probably the best season cliffhanger. Um, like season one had a really great ending to the season um and it, it was probably um not not to say not the like best but it was incredibly good as far as like a first season because it took all these concepts that disparate elements that you didn't realize were connected and then starts connecting them and showing us the wider world uh, season three, all this has been established. This is to be expected from the show, and then the show throws you a curveball. For instance, our main character Sheridan probably being dead. Um, I mean, the show has, in many times, either written out, outright killed in the case of Talia, or uh, or, or done interesting things with main characters to take them out of the picture. And now we have the main character who's potentially going to be dead, you know, and I will talk about that further when we get into next season about some of the implications when it comes to Sheridan's plotline and some of the interesting ways Jameis subverts expectations. But that was just so unheard of at the time. This got to think this is the 90s, you know, killing off a main character, not really a thing most shows would do. And uh, the, the rare times it was done, it was, you know, completely and utterly useless. Like, uh, who shot JR? The infamous thing, uh, where it's just completely undone and no one gave a shit anymore. Uh, but you also have, like, things like The Best of Both Worlds, which uh, is a Star Trek thing that I may get to at some point. Uh, where John Luke Picard is potentially a Borg, is now a villain. Uh, but then we undo it, but we undo it in a satisfying way, but it still was up in the air whether Picard was going to be dead the next season. 
this is this is a rare thing in television of the time, and I think it's really important to emphasize that. But I just wanted to speak about that, that there's a lot of mysteries going into season four, and it adds to the sense of unknown and sense of dread, the moments of transition, the moments of revelation, being born in pain, as Jakar puts it at the end of the episode, uh, that, this, that this episode sort of... Uh, brings that's what it makes it one of the best season finales in my opinion um so let's get into the entire anna thing because that's pretty much most of what i have to talk about and then i have some things to talk about with justin uh so anna showing up and she is played by melissa gilbert who is well at the time was bruce boxleitner's wife uh, and she's been recast, and matter of fact, they reshoot the old scene from season two where we get to see the message uh, from Anna with Melissa, and it, it is... There's been a long, complicated history of this uh, plot line, and as with pretty much everything in Babylon 5, things don't go smoothly behind the scenes, yet JMS is able to bring it all together to make it seem seamless, but it's really not. I talked about this with the the, 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 the uh, Babylon 4 changes, the uh, uh, the merging of uh, Talia and Alita's plot line to, uh, you know, getting rid of Sinclair and bringing in Sheridan and, and the Delenn romance and all this stuff, but also, like, in the gathering, we had Carolyn, uh, and she was a she was a uh, a traitor, and uh, like uh, she she, uh, she she was sort of a, a shipping trader and had owned a shipping line and all this stuff, and she liked to go off on adventures, so she was going to be the one that was going to disappear, but then the actress didn't want to come back. So when we when we returned for season one, we introduced Catherine Sakai who uh, goes and explores areas for uh, for uh, potential expeditions, uh, basically surveying systems before the uh, other people come in. Uh, you know, so it, it was going to be that she disappeared, uh, and that originally her and Sinclair, because at the end of season one, we're going to be married. Uh, and then... We get rid of that, and finally, with Sheridan, we're, he he just goes, okay, I'm done introducing this concept over and over again, so let's just say that it already happened. Uh, it's, it's quite comical when you know the behind-the-scenes reasoning for it. And then, of course, when we finally get to it, we have to change the actor. Um, so it, it, it's quite comical, but it really works. Um, because it would have had substantially more impact if it was something, you know, someone like Catherine Sakai and this was still Sinclair, as was the original idea, uh, because we would have seen the relationship develop over time and how much they care for each other. In this case, Sheridan and Anna's entire relationship is backstory. So we don't have that familiar connection with them, but it still works, uh, not only because we have heard about Anna and we've heard about the effect of her death on uh, Sheridan. We have seen it repeatedly, especially in season two. And 
Anna being played by Melissa Gilbert, who was, at the, as I said, at the time, Bruce Boxleitner's wife. They have an inherent chemistry together that means that they work well together and thus makes Anna, while still a antagonistic force, a force that we can empathize and understand why Sheridan, while trepidatious, is still going to go with, through some stuff with her. Um, now, what I love about this episode in particular is it doesn't treat you like an idiot. Uh, we are pretty sure that something's going on with Anna. Uh, and everything is kind of suspicious around her, and, uh, it's very clear that she is trying to manipulate Sheridan in some way. And you add in the fact that, as I've hinted at before, Delan always knew she was alive and just never said anything. And that's one thing I really love is that conversation between Delan and Sheridan. He's like, how can I trust you again after you kept this from me? And she's like, because if we had told you, we know you would have gone straight to Zaha Doom and hell would have broken loose, basically. And that's the problem. Inherently, and this will come into play a lot later with a lot more of the themes of next season, but Sheridan has always displayed this before. He believes in individualistic freedom. He believes in the power of free will, the right to choose. And the fact that Delenn and Kosh actively kept this information from him because they made a character judgment of him and refused to let him make his own decisions, his own choice, that's what he has a problem with. He understands because he's a member of the Army of Light. Uh, he's been working with uh, taking down Clark uh, with other military figures. He, he's, a, he's a commander of a space station. He used to be a commander of a spaceship. You know, he understands the value of a need-to-know basis when it comes to information. He figured that she was holding some stuff back from him, but not this. Something that is integrally tied to him personally and should have been his right to choose what to do with that information. But instead, she stole that choice away. Uh, it's, it's a great conversation because it plays on a personal level in multiple ways, like two different ways. You have the Sheridan who is really upset that Dylan and Kosh ref refused to let him have the freedom of choice, the right to choose what he did with the information that Anna was alive, but you also have the fact that he has come to care, and as he says, love, you know, uh, Delenn, he is in love with her, but now he has to come with terms with the fact that the woman he used to love and still loves, you know, um, Anna is back, and how is he supposed to react with that, and how is he supposed to react in the fact that the woman he now loves betrayed him on a very personal level? There's no easy answer. And that is something that Lynn, what, what I love about that, it, maybe it's because of my own cynicism when it comes to television writing, um, because I've seen too many, you know, shows and uh, other things where it will be made a big deal 
out of the situation. There would have been a lot of screaming and yelling and running out of the room and uh, in a huff and then coming back and saying, how dare you betray me? Instead, it's one simple conversation. Yes, they do get heated, but it's not melodramatic about it. And they handle it like mature adults. When the last thing Dylan says to Sheridan is, I love you. If there is, if you cannot trust me anymore and you cannot believe anything I say, at least believe that. And that's powerful because he loves her too. This is not an easy situation. This is not a situation with a yes or no answer to it. Was Delyn right? Who knows? Uh, but it was her decision. It's what she did. And this is Sheridan's reaction to it. There is no melodrama. There is no fighting. It is just simply them reacting to it as human beings. You want to know how refreshing that is? in the current television landscape to see this and not see some melodramatic teenage crap like I see on the CW or has been done to certain properties that I love being adapted and them being turned into melodramatic CW-esque type things. Referring to The Witcher, by the way. Uh, that... It, it, it's so nice to see people act like human beings for once. Like mature adults. But anyway. Uh, back to my original point about the episode not treating you like an idiot. Repeatedly, Sheridan's plan is laid out. Of We see the scans that Franklin takes. We know that we can see the name that's Carolyn, which is Bester's lover. And it's not explicitly said, hey, these are scans from the augmented telepath. It's left up to you to notice that detail. And Sheridan's plan of going along with Anna and loading the bombs onto the White Star are all done without overtly telling you. We know Sheridan is potentially up to something. But we don't know what, and we don't know why, and we don't know if he's just going along with Anna because his emotions are in his way or not. It's nice and complicated. And what it is, is it's intentionally trying to throw you off. And I've seen this complaint that people didn't buy this episode. Matter of fact, one of the people I've watched the show with, my father, actively disliked this episode up until the final few minutes when he realized that Sheridan was planning this situation all along and he actively was getting really annoyed that, he, that Sheridan was just going along with Anna. But as I say, if you pay proper attention, you'll notice that Sheridan takes the evidence that Franklin gives him, starts, uh, you know, starts uh, formulating a plan, working with Garibaldi and to get the stuff loaded up. And, but never outright tells the audience. We just know that Sheridan is up to something. And what you know, what it leads to is a great reveal when it actually happens. But also, we you can tell the way that Bruce Boxliner is acting uh, is that Sheridan doesn't actually trust Anna in anything she says. He kind of goes, yeah, 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 Anna, you're right. But whenever she's not looking, he's looking at her suspiciously. You gotta pay close attention. It doesn't treat you like an idiot. It just lets you go along for the ride. And if you 
are smart enough to catch on to the fact that Sheridan is planning for stuff, like the very subtle thing of him, you know, taking two PPGs with him, you know, uh, in in a normal show, we would have uh, him talking to a character about how he's going to take two, or internal monologue, or him talking to himself for something like. Instead, we don't even call attention to it. It's just he's got two. He um, puts one in a holster, then he grabs another one out of a drawer. And that's it. A very subtle work. Uh, it's it, it's a nice way to play your audience. If they're smart enough, they'll keep up. If they're not, well, then they're in for a big surprise. Now, uh, Anna being what she is, uh, I like how she is Anna, but she's not. This was always the intended idea of the arc, was that she was going to have been changed. That that basically, uh, that that uh, the psychor changed the love interest of the main character to operate the shadow vessels. Obviously, a lot of that got jettisoned out, uh, and it was just that she was plugged in the shadow vessel, and boom. Uh, but I like how Sheridan goes. Yeah, her memories are there, she looks like her, she talks like her, but personality, the woman I fell in love with, not there. And this is the death of personality argument that I was talking about. Uh, I've, I've brought up the death of personality a couple times, uh, especially in Passing Through Gethsemane, but I just want to point that out that this is what death of personality does, is that the person may look like someone you know, may act like someone you know, but the way that they really are isn't them. Uh, and how horrific that is to see. Uh, now, I want to talk about the inherent uh, deal with uh, the Shadows and the Vorlons. I've brought this up several times, so I'm not going to go into too much detail. I'll probably bring it up a, a, more in Season 4, but I, I've talked in very spoiler warnings and outside spoiler warnings about Vorlon mentality and Shadow mentality. And this is where the mystique of the Shadows is kind of unveiled. We find out that their true meaning is chaos, but that was always pretty obvious to me even before I got to this episode on my first watch. Uh, and the Vorlons have always been this weird, manipulative thing where you can tell they're, 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 they're basically coded to be the good guys and Shadows are coded to be bad guys. But if you actually look at it, they're, none of them are what they think they are or what they're shown to be, or nor are they what they think they are. And uh, it, it, it's interesting to see how the Shadows perspective of the Vorlons is almost identical to the Vorlon's view of the Shadows. That they have usurped their their, their dominant, you know, they, they, they have sort of uh, progressed past the an agreement that we made and are now imposing their will. Well, aren't the Vorlon's doing that too? And uh, they're all about, you know, conflict breeds evolution. Whereas the Vorlon's are all about order and discipline bring about you know, obedience, and thus obedience can be used to shepherd you in the right direction. But they both want obedience. They both want you to do as you are told. Uh, and they both have their questions that are both in, in, in sort of symbolic of their own uh, ideologies. The shadows is what do you want? 
Uh, and the Vorlons is, who are you? Which I like that that's one of the first wor words that Sheridan says is, who are you? To, when he's talking to Justin. But the that's that's the inherent thing within the uh, the Vorlons and the in the shadows is that they are both equal and opposites, which I'll get into when I talk about the hand situation uh, with Justin and Sheridan. Uh, but they're they're identical in a way. They are very much petty squabblers. This entire conflict, this thousand-year-old conflict comes down to a disagreement between parenting styles, basically. And that will become more apparent as time goes on. But there's also some other interesting tidbits about the Vorlins of the Shadows uh, that, you know, um, they have kind of forgotten who and what they are, really. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what do they want and who are you? You know, that, those are their questions. But have they ever asked that to themselves? They keep avoiding those questions, if you notice. Uh, and when, when Justin describes the shadows, he describes them as basically the people behind the scenes. But that's it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just that conflict breeds evolution. Okay, that's fine. But why do you believe that? They never ask themselves very essential questions. They've kind of forgotten why they do this. And that will become very important in the next season. Uh, now, I want to talk about the, um, the situation with Justin. So the hand... Uh, so, uh, we had been talked about, or we have been told multiple times uh, since season two that there's the hands of the shadows and the Vorlons. Sheridan is the hand of the Vorlons, and now we meet the hand of the shadows that is Justin. Now, there are pros and cons to this. First, I want to talk, uh, just say that I love the idea in the subversion of the idea of nexuses or chosen ones, if you will. That in the Babylon 5 universe, there's no such thing as a really a chosen one. Instead, there are people of great influ influence uh, who are called nexuses. And if you kill one, they just become a martyr and another one takes their place. Uh, so, you know, there are other nexuses about. Uh, and we'll, we'll be told some of them, uh, you know, that, uh, about some of them later on, and we'll even see some of them demonstrate this. So I just, just want to keep that in mind that I love the idea that it's a nice version of the Chosen One trope, that the Chosen One isn't the Chosen One simply because he's the main character of the story. It's because he's an influential figure, and if he was to be killed, such as he is in this episode, uh, you know, another one would take their place, and that's all fine and dandy. That's just the way the world works, because if you look at it, that's the way the world actually works in real life. You know, you kill someone, they become a martyr for a cause, and thus their name lives on, but other people carry on their cause in their name. But anyway... Justin being the Hand of the Shadows is both a great subversion of tropes and also horrible storytelling all at the same time. And it's just mind-boggling how uh, this this got, got put into the episode, proves to be such an interesting idea, and then nothing's done with it. 
So the idea of the hands is that they're their equals and their opposites. Sheridan is a loud, abrasive person with tons of influence. He's a war hero. He's great at organizing things and putting people together. He's the face of so many ideas. Uh, and he's willing to stand up and fight for what he believes in. A lot of people know who Sheridan is. No one knows who Justin is. Justin's a nobody. He's behind the scenes, orchestrating events to go the way he wants it to, without much knowledge of it ever happening. Great idea on paper. The problem is, is that we want an interesting interaction between the two hands. They're, they're their equals and their opposites. But we never do. He's in here for less than 10 minutes, primarily a spouse's exposition, and then is unceremoniously just killed off. Done. Justin's gone. He'll never show up again. And Morden will remain the face of the shadows. The idea is that Justin is the hand and Morden is the face, whereas uh, Sheridan is both the hand and the face of the Forlons. The inherent problem with this is that you're introduced the character as the equal and opposite of Sheridan and just kill him off less than 10 minutes later. Uh, it is so anticlimactic and it's just horrible storytelling when it comes to antagonists because there was just no way for us to care that this was the big reveal. Uh, like, it, it doesn't really make for a satisfying antagonist to Sheridan and sort of again to his yang. Uh, and does not, uh, does not make for a really satisfying reveal. However, it does make for a satisfying, uh, subversion of the trope where the villain is always the equal and opposite of the hero. Um, it, you, you can find that trope a lot in various different fictions, but most especially in superhero fiction. Uh, how they're the dark reflections of each other, uh, two sides of the same coin. And we, and we get that on the Shadows and the Vorlons' ideological war, but when their puppets uh, are being being posed as that and then just aren't, it doesn't work on a storytelling level. I speak as a writer, not as a fan of the series, because as, uh, because as a fan of the series, I love the inversion of the trope. It's a great idea on paper. But when actually writing it, it has no impact. When I first watched this, I thought Justin was this random character, and then he was unceremoniously killed, and I never talked—I never even thought about him again, ever. It was not until I went through it again and was analyzing it, and was uh, talking about people that had watched it or introducing it to other people that I realized truly came to comprehend the the subversion of the the you know genre tropes that was going on. Uh, with Justin, but I was also seeing the flaws. There are times when subversion and inversions of tropes work, and then sometimes they don't. And I don't think that it really worked here. I think if we were to do a modern retelling, sort of a reboot of B5, Justin would be our, one of our main POV characters uh, for the Shadow's side. Or... In, in, or you just make more than the hand, uh, and you, instead of making them equal and opposite, you make them just equals. Because, as it is, I know a lot of people who just think that Morden is the other hand. 
because from a trope level, it makes more sense. Plus, Morden actually has screen time throughout every season, meaning that we have built up his antagonism. We, as the audience, hate his guts. Therefore, we care about the way he reflects on our heroes. Whereas Justin, introduced in this episode, is on it for less than 10 minutes, spends most of the time just expounding exposition about the shadow mentality, and then is just killed off by a nuclear bomb. The end. Like, that... That's poor storytelling, in my opinion. It works in the moment, but doesn't work as a whole, I think is the best way to explain it. But anyway, I do love this ending. It's probably my favorite season finale out of the entire uh, series, I think. If the original plan for season four's cliffhanger had happened, uh, which there is stuff to talk about behind the scenes when it comes to season four, I think that would have been great. And I don't count season five as a, a season cliffhanger because the season five uh, uh, you know, series ender is actually just the, the, the series as a whole ending and it's beautiful but we'll get there when we get there so that was my thoughts on uh zaha doom good episode good ideas some poor execution but still really 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 works and that that scene where sheridan has to jump it's so full of tension and dread and just overwhelming sense of doom so good. I go back to it a lot. This is how you create tension in a story. This is how you write an amazing scene. It's just fantastic. Till then, I'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>